This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Okay, good morning. Uh, if you are not here for a karma calamity, um, then this is, you need to go to another life zone. This is the Ecclesiastes one, karma calamity. Everybody good with that? Would you like us all to close our eyes and duck our heads so that any embarrassed, wrongly placed attendees can just slip out? No? Okay. Well, welcome everyone. My name's Alan. Um, it's great to see you here. Uh, it's really encouraging to see that so many people are interested to come to a, a, a life zone about the Old Testament. So well done. Uh, props to you for that. Uh, even more encouraging that so many people want to come to a life zone about Ecclesiastes uh, in the Old Testament. So good for you. This is really, really encouraging. Um, if you enjoy it today, tell your friends. Um, and let's see how many people we can get to engage with the Old Testament this weekend. Um, as you would have seen, hopefully from the handbook, uh, I lead a church in York, City Church, and married to Susanna. We have a, a six-year-old boy called Zachary and a cockapoo puppy called Mustard. Um, and so the Lord has been teaching me patience in these days. And uh, I have the wounds and the scratches to, uh, to bear witness to that. And uh, we don't have the dog with us on site, but we do have, I do have wife and child. And so uh, uh, this, is, this is me and family. Um, I'm going back to school again in October. I'm going to be studying at Durham Uni, which is, uh, hey, alumni? Still there? How are you? Okay. Well, we won't get into a cliquey conversation about our own university. Uh, so just to say, even I'll, I'll be 42 in October, so you can still study and go to school at this age. It's good. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm kind of waffling because that's what you do at the start of a life zone and a seminar. Um, it'd be helpful if you can't see the screen, it would be helpful for you to position yourself so that you can see it um, because there will be quite a few things that will pop up on the screen during the course of the life zone this morning. Um, and if you can't see them, it might be a little bit baffling perhaps. So uh, maybe make sure that you can see the screen. If you are taking notes and things, that's really good. Uh, I will try and give you a few little group exercises during the course of the morning uh, just to keep us on our toes and so it's not just me yakking for an hour and a quarter. Um, I'd love to pray and then we'll dive in if that's all right. Shall we bow our heads or however we like to do this? Living God, we want to thank you this morning for the gift of scripture and we want to ask that, uh, that your spirit would breathe through your word to us this morning that you would, uh, as Anselm said, find that faith is seeking understanding. Uh, Lord, we love you. We believe you. Give us help as we seek to understand you more fully, as we seek to engage with your word, uh, as we seek to live with and before you in your world. Would you help us? Uh, would you nourish and encourage us? Uh, would you give us great skill in interpreting your word that we might love you and serve you better as your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, I'm going to be just trying to juggle Bible and microphone and notes and iPad down here. This is what this funny bucket is, um, in the hope that a music stand will miraculously appear from somewhere. So, uh, so we'll crack on. Um, karma Calamity. I'm going to say a little bit about exactly why I've called this Karma Calamity uh, in probably another life zone and a half. Uh, so it's going to keep you guessing for the time being. Um, but it is about Ecclesiastes. And uh, 
Ecclesiastes is part of what, in the heavy world of biblical studies, is called wisdom literature. Uh, And although there are um, many different parts of the Old Testament where you would see hints of wisdom, uh, perhaps in the Joseph narratives in Genesis or even bits of Deuteronomy, perhaps, primarily in biblical studies, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is concerned with three books, and that's Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. These three together form a kind of canon, if you like, of wisdom material in the Old Testament. Now, there are some good reasons for grouping together Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. And the reasons are this. Uh, There are no references to the history of Israel, particularly, in any of these three books. You won't find any reference to people like David or Abraham, particularly. Uh, There's no kind of reference to covenants or anything. That is absent from Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. In fact, in the book of Job, uh, Job is identified as being from the land of Uz. And the land of Uz, wherever it is, is certainly not Israel. And so Job, even in the Old Testament, as part of wisdom literature, doesn't even really land there as an Israelite. There's something going on with that. And if this was a seminar on Job, we could touch on it. But just to point out that these three books, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, these are some of the things that mark it as wisdom literature. Now, there's also, as you would expect, perhaps, a strong instructional character to the three books that are wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, They focus on the instruction of the person. And wisdom is not some bizarre, out-there thing, necessarily. Wisdom, in biblical terms, is about life and about doing and performing faith. It's about, actually, how you live before God in the world. And there are a number of ways of construing that, but that's, that's basically what wisdom is dealing with, how you live. And so there is an instructional element that runs through all of these three books. And there's also, therefore, a strong focus on wisdom itself. Um, each one of these books references wisdom specifically in a number, uh, lots of different times. And so uh, in the book of Job, there are 18 explicit mentions of wisdom. 42 in Proverbs and 28 in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that doesn't count for antonyms, different ways of speaking about the same thing. Okay? So wisdom and the idea of wisdom and instruction shows up significantly in these three books. Now, there's also this idea of wisdom. That is, is, I'm going to say it's not univocal. What I mean by that is that wisdom isn't spoken of as just one thing. Uh, just a single idea or concept. Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs tackle wisdom from slightly different angles, perhaps. And so perhaps you would get a very different thing reading the book of Proverbs. And and if you're familiar with Proverbs, you would know that it's quite different to read Proverbs as it is to read Job. But it's different to read Job as it is to read Ecclesiastes. They're speaking about wisdom, but they don't all speak with one voice. They don't all speak in a same kind of way. So it's not flattened out. These three books in the Old Testament don't allow us to flatten wisdom down into just one thing that could be neatly packaged and then doled out to whoever might be listening. Let me tell you one thing that is shared by all three of our wisdom books. Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs all share many, many references to the fear of God. That's a significant theme in Job, 
Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, the fear of God. But they each have a slightly different nuance. So let me show you three examples here. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's other places that say similar things in Proverbs. Job 28 verse 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God and keep his commandments. And the author goes on to say, for that is the whole duty of everyone. As you can see here, the fear of the Lord is being used in some different ways to construe different kind of angles or perspectives on wisdom and honoring God. Excuse me while I juggle for a moment. Now, is it going to stay there? Now, it's always risky to make assumptions when you are teaching. But for the time being, I'm going to make an assumption that everybody here understands that the fear of the Lord in the Bible is not the kind of fear that one might experience negatively in a, a horror movie, um, whether Blair Witch or if you're old enough to remember the Quatermass Project or something like that. Um, my dad used to talk about that. Um, or some kind of traumatic moment like, uh, I don't know, like maybe kind of a penalty shootout and a World Cup. Or the, the fear is different. It's construed differently when we're talking about the fear of God. In actual fact, fear of God is the Old Testament's number one term for describing appropriate human response to God. You may not have realized that. That is the Old Testament's number one term for describing appropriate human response to God. And there's two texts on the screen. So Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, Moses says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And then we've already seen Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man or the whole duty of everyone. So we see this fundamentally positive notion when we're talking about fearing God. It's positive because it's about getting your life in the right order and a right response to God in the world. Perhaps we could consider two key examples from the Old Testament. One would be Abraham. So this is from Genesis chapter 22, and it's the Lord or the angel of the Lord speaking to Abraham when he's just about to plunge the knife dramatically into Isaac. And the angel says, do not lay your hand on the boy, for now I know that you fear God. And Abraham is being held out in this text as being the kind of paradigm, the, 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 the quintessential God-fearer, one who fears God. And that's actually, in Genesis 22, very interestingly, is the, the last significant test that Abraham has. After Genesis 22, Abraham disappears off the scene a little bit. There's no more big narratives or speech about Abraham. This happens right at the end of his life, right at the end of his peace within Genesis. And it's the most significant one. And in that moment, God says, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you fear the Lord. And so we get to see that the fear of God is a significant thing 
when it comes to Abraham. Now, also consider Job, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, This is uh, perhaps the most sparkling description of the character of any one single person in the whole Old Testament. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's quite something. So Job, the man from a not-Israelite town, who isn't an Israelite, is being described as one who fears Israel's God and turns away from evil. And this incredible character reference is being spoken of about this guy. Um, This is not about Job. I get excited about Job. I should be careful. Otherwise, we'll be here for far too long. So hopefully you can see then that the fear of God in these contexts is is positive. It's something that is, direct, is being construed as the right human response to God. It's what God requires from Israel. It's what Abraham exemplifies in his obedience. It's what Job exemplifies in his life. Fear of God is about right human response to God. Now, in a manner of speaking, fear of God in the Old Testament is functionally equivalent to what the New Testament calls faith or trust. And so when we talk about a God-fearer in the Old Testament terms, someone who fears God, we are talking about a genuine believer, someone who trusts God, if you like. Uh, You could perhaps consider Hebrews 11 here. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's almost the equivalent of saying someone who fears God and keeps his commandments. The fear of God describes the right human response to God in the same kind of way that trust and faith does in the New Testament. Therefore, a Christian reading of the Old Testament, or in a Christian reading of this of the Old Testament, this conceptual link, this idea between fear of God and trust or faith is very important. We may be able to find some startling links and connections and examples or, uh, or instruction about how we might live a life of faith and trust by considering how the Old Testament portrays fearing God, living rightly before God, living in right response to God. It requires something that uh, our friend from Durham University will probably know, Walter Mobley, uh, describes uh, the, reading the scriptures with full imaginative seriousness. Okay? It requires reading the Old Testament with your eyes open, with a sense of conceptual links between old and new, with a sense of reading this as Christian scripture. We're going to get into that a little bit in the third session on Sunday. But as we read the Old Testament then, and we understand fear of God, and we understand wisdom, and we start to engage with Ecclesiastes, perhaps we're going to find some startling insights into how we can learn to live a life of appropriate response to God by doing that. All right. What I'm proposing to do then in this life zone involves exploring that concept of fear of God, particularly in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if we're going to understand fear of God positively, as I'm suggesting that we should, 
that I want to try and paint a picture for us today and tomorrow and on Saturday. No, that's tomorrow. Today and tomorrow and Sunday. How long have we been here? Uh, of, uh, I've only had one disturbed night's sleep, and I already don't know what day it is. Uh, I'd like to paint a picture of, uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes as a positive thing. Uh, we're going to look at some texts tomorrow that particularly reference the fear of God. And we're going to try and understand how that instructs us then as Christians from reading an Old Testament text. Okay? Fear of God, trusting God, how we might glean that from this difficult Old Testament book. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, we have some groundwork to do this morning. Uh, I actually want to make you work quite hard this weekend. Um, so please concentrate. Let's get on with this and see how we do. Um, does anybody recognize this film? What is it? Someone give me a yell. Usual Suspects. The Usual Suspects. It's one of my favorite films. I enjoy The Usual Suspects. Um, it's one of my favorite movies mainly because of the incredible ending. Um, now, if you haven't seen The Usual Suspects, don't worry. There's not going to be a spoiler here. Uh, but what I will say is that the very final scene or the last kind of few minutes of The Usual Suspects, I'm going to use this complicated language for it. It works as a hermeneutical key. Okay. It works as a, a key for unlocking what the whole movie is actually about. You watch this film and it's like, whoa, what's going on? And then you get to the end and there's this incredible moment when you suddenly, it's almost like you, the director shows you this is what's been going on. And it doesn't tell you what the film's all about by going through every single scene and every single little kind of twist in the plot and saying, oh, well, that was that and this was that and that was da 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 what it does instead is it gives you a perspective on the whole movie. And what it invites you to do, therefore, is reflect on the whole movie from the perspective of this final scene. Or even, if you like, to go rewind. Well, hang on, I'm giving away my age here. Rewind the VHS. And <laughs> kind of <laughs> stream the movie again to bring it back into the 21st century. And watch Usual Suspects with this final scene in your mind and to gain an insight and a perspective into things. It's really interesting. Now, why am I talking about the Usual Suspects in a life sign about the book of Ecclesiastes? It's a very good question. Well, here's the answer. The ending of the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm talking about verses 9 to 14 in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, are an epilogue. They are this closing summary. And in actual fact, very interestingly for our understanding of Ecclesiastes, it's probably written by a different author to the body of the book of Ecclesiastes. And what happens in that epilogue is the voice of the author in the epilogue gives you a clue, a key to how you should understand everything that has just gone before. And it not only gives you an insight into different things throughout the book, but it gives you the, a sense of, oh, what happens if I go back to the beginning now? and read Ecclesiastes with the perspective of, I'll call him the epilogist, him or her, the author of the epilogue. What happens if I read this book now from that perspective? It gives us a significant steer as to how we should understand everything that has gone before in the previous 11 and a half chapters. So in other words, Ecclesiastes really tells you how you should understand the rest of Ecclesiastes. By paying attention to the ending of the book and the epilogue to the book, it's a little bit like, perhaps, 
the Gospels that tell you about the resurrection of Jesus. If you consider Luke chapter 24, when Cleopas and his companion walk on the, walk into Emmaus on the road from Jerusalem, and Jesus, raised from the dead, appears and walks with them, and they don't recognize him. And he has, they say, are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem in these days? And so they, they have all these facts about what, who Jesus was and what he'd done and all these hopes and stuff. All the facts are in, but there's no recognition. And Jesus opens up the scriptures for them. And then when he breaks bread, their eyes are opened and they understand and they, they recognize him. And it almost takes that moment at the end to make sense of everything else that has gone before. Do you see? The ending is not just, oh, conclusion, happy days, bye-bye. It's, ah, oh, Here's a clue to understanding everything. And Ecclesiastes does that for us in a significant kind of way. So we're going to begin our exploration of Ecclesiastes at the end, which seems bizarre, doesn't it? Surely you just start at the beginning of a book and work your way through it systematically. Well, that's one way of doing it. But I think from, if we take this perspective, beginning at the end, we will begin to see how the ending shapes our understanding of everything else. I mentioned a moment ago that the voice that we hear in the final six verses of Ecclesiastes is different to the one that we hear throughout the rest of the book. Let me just give you a little snapshot. I don't want to spend a long, long time on this. Here's verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes. So right at the beginning of the book, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Okay. And then at chapter 12 and verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, I trust that I don't have to go into great detail explaining to you the similarity between chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8. In technical language, in biblical studies, this could be called an inclusio. It's like an envelope or a frame. It's got a beginning and an ending that's very similar that gives you a clue to the literature that this piece here belongs together. This verse and this verse mark out all that's in between as being sort of the one body, one piece of literature, if you like. And what's very interesting about this is that when you get to verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, all of a sudden another voice comes in and begins to reflect on the preacher begins to reflect on who he is and what he did and how you should receive what he has said. It's not the voice of the preacher. It's the voice of somebody else. It's the voice of the epilogue, the epilogist. Some people call the author the frame editor. It doesn't matter what you call him, but you must learn to think about that end section of Ecclesiastes as being a different voice suddenly coming in and speaking to us about the contents of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I should make a brief point here about the preacher or the author of this body of work in the middle of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's more than a passing comment, but it's not something that I want to get completely bogged down in. Um, the, the term the preacher or the teacher or the gatherer or even the convener is one way of interpreting or translating the word. They're, they're all attempts to translate the Hebrew word koaleth. Now, you have a go, koaleth. Nice, koaleth. 
Now, Koaleth is not actually a name in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a title. And that's why in most Bible translations, you'll find that Koaleth is translated the preacher or the teacher or the convener. Um, I read the ESV most of the time. Sometimes I'll make forays into the NRSV. That's what most of this life sign is based on, the NRSV translation of Ecclesiastes. The ESV, for my money, probably clouds the issue by calling Koaleth the preacher, because that gives a very particular idea, doesn't it? What, what do you think of when you think of the preacher? Uh, I don't know whether you think about Trinity Broadcasting Network and somebody yelling in a Southern American accent, or maybe you think about your local lead elder who, who's the preacher, or who thinks he's the preacher, um, or somebody else who you know who is the preacher. Uh, it kind of gives an idea, doesn't it? It's not necessarily the right idea. Gatherer, convener, they might work as well. Basically, no one really knows exactly who this preacher is. But the word coaleth gives a sense of someone who's an instructor, a gatherer, a, uh, someone who does the work of teaching or, or instructing the people somehow. Some people like to think that coaleth is actually King Solomon. Just put your hand up if you've heard that before, that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. Yeah, okay, it's pretty common. It's almost certainly not King Solomon for a number of different reasons. Uh, perhaps one of the key reasons is that uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, the preacher or Koaleth says, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Well, that's not very impressive. If only one person has been over Jerusalem before you, that was David. Solomon was only preceded by one king, David. So it can't really be Solomon. A greater claim to Solomonic influence comes in Proverbs that has much more of a Solomon flavor to it. Most biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars, would suggest that the voice that we hear coalesce throughout the main body of Ecclesiastes is being, it's being written in a, in a kind of royal sense. It's kind of tipping the hat towards Solomon as a kind of kingly wisdom somehow but it's almost certainly not Solomon himself. In the final analysis, it doesn't actually matter who Koaleth is. What matters is how we understand what Koaleth says, and that's why the epilogue in Ecclesiastes is going to be incredibly helpful for us. Okay, I'd like to take two minutes there, and I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and either go, uh, or say, oh, wow, I didn't understand that before. Or, wow, what do you think about that? Um, you know, like the two old geezers in the Muppet show who sit on the balcony. What do you think of the show so far? Um, you can do that. Um, oh, and please pay attention to the piece of paper floating around. Wow, this, this is high tech. There have had to, you know, what they haven't told you from the main stage is that coming to such a nice venue has meant certain cuts in other areas of tech. So by the time they've dealt with Lou Felligham and her expensive rider, um, by the time they put the lights up and the screens, we're left with P. Stacey. Uh, is that female, by the way? Yes. <laughs> Arctots 2, collect. No screens for that. Okay, no one's, okay, we're all right. Uh, take... 
just two minutes, and I just want you to, to discuss the story so far. What have, what's, what's rocked you? What's surprised you? What has made you really think, okay, oh gosh, this is, this is so much better than I thought, or wow, this is really crazy. Um, just reflect on things, and then we'll maybe have a, couple, a minute or so feedback briefly before I carry on. Okay, over to you. Okay, that's, that's enough for the moment. If you'd like to finish, wrap up your conversations, turn around, we're going to continue. Okay, let's just... Let me just go, let's have three quick reflections. It can be negative, positive. I'm quite robust, so you can take me on if you like. Just put your hand up, three reflections. Anyone brave enough? Anyone going to say yes? Oh, hold on. Uh, we should get this on the microphone because it's... Um... Um, yeah, we were just saying we really like the way you explained the fear of God. And I kind of knew in the Old Testament that it didn't mean they were afraid of him, but the way you explained it and said about how it marries up with faith and trust in the New Testament was really good. I really like that. Good way of... Okay, cool. So did you all get that? So the fear of God, just the idea that that's about positive response towards God. Fantastic. Any others? Yeah, Raj. Yeah, I'd often think like fear of God, holy reverence, all that kind of thing, which I'm sure it is as part of it. But that linking it to faith and trust and bringing the old into the new, that's really helpful. Good. Anyone else? Just one more. Uh, I'll settle for two, if there's only two. Anybody else want to? Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I really like the, I really like the idea that um, wisdom's about life. It's not theoretical and distant. Great. Yep. So fear of God, appropriate response to God, wisdom, thing about how you live, about an appropriate posture towards God. Um, great. That's good. I mean, that helps me because it means that, okay, things are going in and that's a winner. Um, all the rest of you who are looking bamboozled, okay. Um, <laughs> if you are bamboozled, by the way, please feel free to just stick your hand up and ask a question. I should say I, I get excited and I will just plow on um, because I love this stuff loads. And uh, if you're not sure, there's, there's no such thing as a, as a stupid question in this context, honestly. So if you, if you just are not quite sure, uh, I may defer the question and say, can we chat about it at the end? Or if I think it's particularly pertinent, I might give an answer there and then. Is that okay? Are you all happy with that? I know there'll be a mixture of external and internal processes in the room and things as well. So, okay. Right, we'll move on. So... Aside from the, uh, whether or not we think Kohaleth is Solomon or whoever else it might be, the question of authorship is kind of irrelevant to what we're supposed to do with what Kohaleth says. What counts is Ecclesiastes as a finished product, as a canonical book, a finished book of the Bible. What counts is what happens to the person who engages with this text, what is supposed to happen to you. And, and sometimes the scriptures give you hints and clues as to what is supposed to happen to the person who engages with this. And so the epilogue that we're going to go into some detail with now reflects on Coalette's words and so gives us a steer as to how we should think about this book, which is often baffling for people, isn't it? And finally, it gives us uh, an idea of the kind of outcome that reading and engaging with Coalette might actually produce for us. Here we go. L. Dickinson mail. Arctot 2 again. Goodness me, if your kids are in Arctot 2, get them out. <laughs> What's going on? It's squishy warfare. <laughs> 
Okay, so we're finally about ready to start engaging seriously with Ecclesiastes itself. I've done quite a lot of uh, like out there groundwork, but I just want you to know that that's really important. I want to do more than just give you some answers here. What I want to help you and equip you to do is to actually think about how you read the Bible yourself. It's to become a better engager with Scripture and to think better thoughts and ask better questions of the text that you might better honor God. That's a part of my... In fact, in some ways, if you take nothing else away from this life zone, I'd hope that you'd take that away. Wow, I, I really I see that Scripture is so valuable and I want to love it more. I hope that you would take that away almost more than anything. So... We dive into Ecclesiastes. We're not actually going to tackle any words of Koaleth this morning. That's going to be for those who are brave enough to return tomorrow when we're going to tackle three key texts from the body of the work of Ecclesiastes. We're going to take time to pay careful attention to the author of the epilogue. And remember, this is about reading a hermeneutical key, some way of uh, something that gives us an understanding of everything else that has gone before. And I don't want to build this up on helpfully. Um, I don't want to sort of make loads of it and then you'll be like, oh. <laughs> uh, but it is, I, I don't think I can really underestimate or overestimate rather how important these words are for understanding Ecclesiastes. You just can't read this book properly without giving adequate attention to the ending of it. If you're unwilling to pay attention to what Ecclesiastes says about Ecclesiastes, how will you ever be able to understand Ecclesiastes? Sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? So, let's engage with the 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 the, the epilogist, the the author of the epilogue. I'm going to refer to to the to the epilogist. Okay, so I mean the the writer of the epilogue in Ecclesiastes. This is where it starts. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, says the author, Koaleth also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, this is dynamite. Having read Ecclesiastes, and to get to this point, it's a bit of a, uh, what? Hey, it, it comes as quite a shock, because it basically says that Koaleth was kosher, if I can use a slightly, <laughs> I don't know whether that's appropriate term to use, you get the understanding. The, the apologist affirms Koaleth and his work as being orthodox, Koaleth's wisdom is not wacky or weird or out there or something to kind of be sidetracked. Oh, Ecclesiastes is a bit weird. Let's go to Proverbs, especially Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own. That's, that's wisdom. We can handle wisdom. Guard your heart. Above all things, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. We can live with that, but Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'm not really sure how we deal with this. And so suddenly we find this voice crops up at the end of the book to say, no, no, you listen. Because Koaleth was wise. He was orthodox. He was kosher. You need to pay attention to what he says. Koaleth's words are legitimate biblical godly wisdom. And that's so important for reading and interpreting this book. So important. If the apologist affirms that Koaleth is wise, 
then the content of Ecclesiastes belongs in that hallowed category of biblical wisdom. And no amount of coughing and spluttering and wriggling will actually be able to shake us from that. Besides being wise means he was wise and we should pay attention. Now, Colette's wisdom was also communal. Not every wise man is a teacher of the public or an author. Not every wise man is someone whose words are shared for public consumption. But Coaleth was. He was a man of the people. Coaleth taught the people knowledge. To teach the people knowledge, you have to be in and amongst the people. You have to be a public figure. You need to be a sage, as it were. And so not only is Coalette's wisdom, according to the epilogue, absolutely orthodox and trustworthy because it's wise, he's wise, he's also a man who is in and amongst people teaching and instructing. He's not a, a cloistered academic. He's not tucked away in an ivory tower. He's not the mujahideen of bloggers writing and banging out all his crazy ideas from behind a computer desk somewhere in Grand Rapids. He's in and amongst the people. He's a public guy. And so if the apologist paints a picture of Coeleth and his wisdom here that's public or communal as well as being wise, then it should press on us who read the book of Ecclesiastes, and even more, I might add, on those who might teach the book of Ecclesiastes, that this is for public consumption. It's not an embarrassing book. It's not a brown paper bag under the counter. You know, you wander into the news agent, oh, have you got a copy of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, hang on a minute. There it is. Hidden. You don't have to put, click safe browsing to download Ecclesiastes. It's, it's like this is, this, is, this is right. This is good. This is orthodox. This is to be embraced. This is to be listened to. This is to be taught and, and, and loved and heard. Now, Coleth was also careful. He, he, oh, where have we got here? Uh, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. I mean, this is an incredibly warm picture that we get in of Coaleth from the Apologist. This is a public teacher of wisdom who was well aware of other sources of wisdom. He studied and arranged Proverbs. This is not all his own crazy thoughts from somewhere. This is a man who has been plunged into the wells of Israel's wisdom, if you like, and has reflected and has thought and has arranged and has mused upon and has taught these things and has arranged them together. And so what we have in Ecclesiastes, in Coalette's words, is this carefully constructed, thoughtfully, wisely put together collection of wisdom from Coalette that is good and is to be embraced and is to be taught. So the apologist wants us to understand that Ecclesiastes is no slap-dash affair the result of careful, studious work with an eye on public responsibility and orthodoxy and on communal wisdom. That's a very, very warm commendation. Uh, who have we here? YP, oh, okay, YP11MVT. I thought that was a name. <laughs> okay, not Arctos 2.9, maybe this is the cause. 
YP11 NVT, return to car park, please. No, okay. No walk of shame. That's good. Okay, so can you see what I've done here, right? So we've just taken the first verse of this epilogue as it's dealt with the person of Coaleth, this other voice. I mean, this is not Coaleth's own voice, is it? Because nobody would talk about himself in this way and actually prove to be orthodox and valuable to him. He would be a weirdo. This other voice comes in reflecting on Coaleth, and that means that we should pay attention. Let's move on to verse 10. Coaleth sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now that tells us that Coaleth was a searcher. He was a searcher after wisdom. Proverbs contains material that suggests that wisdom is something that has to be dug for. It's not something that lies around on the surface that can easily be plucked and gleaned, but you have to dig for it. And Coaleth is a man who searched for wisdom. He sought to find words of delight and uprightly wrote words of truth. In Ecclesiastes now, Coaleth talks about seeking and about being frustrated with seeking. If you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, you might have come across those words. He's, he's seeking after. What's, the, what's life about? Or what, what's, the, what's the point of existence? What, what's the point of God? What's the point of all, these, all this toil and things that people give themselves to? The, the outcome of those questions is not really the point. The point is that Coaleth went about this task of seeking wisdom deliberately and intentionally. Coaleth is to be trusted. His words are to be received because he has gone about this task with significant amounts of diligence and intent. Ecclesiastes is the result of Coaleth's hard work. Wisdom is hard work. And who would say that he didn't pull off what he set out to do? We also learn that Coleth was trustworthy then, don't we? Oh, my thing is frozen up. There we go. Great. Thank you. The epilogist says that Coleth wrote words of truth. And remember, he's talking about the content, this main body of Ecclesiastes. This is not someone who is content to tickle people's ears with pleasant ditties. Coaleth didn't spend his time composing cheap homilies to deliver for people. This is someone who sought out diligently and worked hard for words of truth and who uprightly wrote them down. He sought, he wrote, he taught. He's a trustworthy sage. Now, the author of the epilogue clearly, clearly, clearly loves Coaleth, <laughs> doesn't he? I mean, this is great. I mean, this would be, if you, were, if you wanted to be a wise person and you had ambitions for that, I mean, what a great, that, that, talk about and something to have on your tombstone. The words of the apologist describing a wise man in such warm, wonderful ways. We're supposed to read Coalette's words as the real deal. It may be odd and baffling in places, but it is certainly not unorthodox. However... Even though the apologist thinks that Coaleth is orthodox and trustworthy and kosher and upright and he worked hard and all the rest of it, the apologist does recognize that Coaleth is spiky, very spiky. If we're inclined to think of wisdom as good advice, 
or as uh, this is one of my pet hatreds in church settings when people say wisdom is nothing more than sanctified common sense. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? There's nothing common about it. How can you reduce wisdom to sanctified common sense? No, no, no. That might be 21st century kind of mixed up capitalism and Christianity, common sensey, wisdomy type, biblically-esque. But it's not Koalef wisdom. It's not biblical wisdom. That's something different. That's something other. Biblical wisdom is spiky. Let's see why. This is verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 12. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Do you know what a goad is? You probably wouldn't have ever seen one. A a goad in ancient contexts like Israel was a, a stick that a shepherd carried with a nail sticking in the end of the stick, okay? And if you were a shepherd and you had incalcitrant sheep that wouldn't do what they were told, uh, then this goad comes in very handy to jab the sheep somewhere that it hurts to be jabs, which is everywhere if you've got a stick with a nail in it. Vumph! But mainly in the rear quarters. Vumph! Goad, goad! Uh. And it gets the, oh, well, the sheep hopefully moves along or steers away from danger or runs the opposite way to the wolf that's coming or, or something. So there's some, in other words, when the apologist talks about Coalette's words or the words of the wise and Coalette's words are included in this as being like goads, he's saying, be careful. Don't just think the wise words are nice, neat and tidy homilies that make us feel better. They sting. There's an ouchiness about the words of wisdom from Koalet's lips. They leave you feeling a bit uh, uncomfortable and uh, unsettled. And if you hear a sermon series on Ecclesiastes that doesn't leave you wriggling in your seat a little bit, you need to complain to the preacher. You're not working hard enough. This should be like being jabbed in the butt, mate. Come on. What are you doing? I don't bring a goad next week, but you know, at least work, it, work us with this stuff. There's the potential in translating this verse that where it says nails firmly fixed, potentially what that is a reference to is that the words of the wise, then the nails actually stick in the flesh. Not that they're stuck in the end of the goad, but then when, when, you, when you apply the goad, it's, ah, ah, it's not coming out. Uh, and it actually marks you and wounds you somehow so that you carry around this, ah, this, Nail, ouch, I've been wounded by wisdom, ouch. Is this mucking with your ideas of biblical wisdom a little? I hope so, because it is biblical wisdom, okay? It's like a goad. It sticks, it spikes. So if the book of Ecclesiastes, I mean, I may have already done this, and we haven't even really dealt with Koaleth, if it's making you wince and leaving you a bit uncomfortable and unsettled and a little bit like, well, but, 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 but my Christianity is like this. Well, it's doing its job. It's really, really doing its job. Now, some readers, let's talk about the one shepherd for a moment. Some readers and or commentators have assumed that the reference to the one shepherd in this verse is a reference to God. Um, I've written my own footnotes. 
The ESV, oh yes, that's right. The ESV, as usual, uh, nails its colours to the mast by capitalising shepherd. Okay, have I put it up there? No, I haven't. That's the NRSV, that's why. It capitalises the word shepherd to kind of give this idea that it's God who we're talking about here. Um, That's the kind of implication that the ESV gives in its translation. But it's probably really stretching the point too far. This is a simile. The point is really that as goads are to a shepherd, so are the words of the wise to those who hear them. That's the point of this verse, really. It's not really about, well, God is going around with a stick, spiking people with it. It's just making a point about how the words of the wise feel, just like a shepherd's goad, prodding and moving you and leaving you uncomfortable, but wise. We move on to verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Uh, If you are a student, this should be your verse that you pin up on your notice board and send emails to your tutors. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Easy on the pre-reading, please. What do we say about... Is this another thing? We've not found Dickinson yet. It's still all going on in Arctos 2. There's a car on fire. And... And Dickinson's not being found. Wow. Hopefully that's not going up tonight in the main meeting. <laughs> anyway, Dickinson, where's Dickinson? Has anybody, anybody found Dickinson anywhere? Launch a search. Um, should we come back to Ecclesiastes? This is lovely, isn't it? But it is a massive distraction to me because I do quickly lose focus. Um, what does this tell us about coaleth and wisdom. Well, the author of the epilogue is warning us that we shouldn't try to outdo coaleth in the pursuit of wisdom. In fact, he's warning his son, my son. Uh, so this is clearly going reflections on coaleth that are being passed on to a son, to an offspring. And so we might receive this as well. That trying to outdo coaleth, trying to go to the nth degree, trying to go so deep and trying to sort of say, well, coaleth, you went that far, but let me try and go even further, is probably a stupid thing to do. You shouldn't try to outwise coaleth. It's not going to end very well. In making many books, there is no end. Isn't that true? Have you been to the Christian bookshop here so far? Many books, there's always something to read, there's always something. But of making many books, of trying to produce more and more and more and more and more, it's futile. It's almost like the apologist says, just leave it at Coalesth, will you, when it comes to wisdom? Don't try and outdo him. Don't get some bravado and think that you can outdo him on how to live. There's perhaps a reflection here that excessive authorship is absurdity. Not that writing itself is bad, of course, but just sort of excessive churning out of material. Everyone's got something to say. Paperbacks are bound, don't they? It's well worth noting that the apologist doesn't condemn Coalette's work or his approach here but simply warns his son of the dangers of trying to become a little mini Coaleth himself. In other words, this text is sufficient. This text is sufficient. Perhaps it speaks to us about where we 
glean our wisdom from, where we go to to find wisdom? Do we settle for Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes? Are we happy to sit with them, to reflect on them, to study them, to do the hard work in them, to allow them to shape the categories and our understandings of wisdom? Or is that just something that we do as a precursor to buying loads and loads of paperbacks, loads and loads of new material, loads and loads of new things to ponder? There's always something new, isn't there? And newness is a bit of an idol and a bit of an addiction in our culture. We always want something new. Give me something new, something new, more books, more books, more stuff. And the apologist in Ecclesiastes just says, don't bother. This is enough. And really, it is. It is. And I think for people who are trained by it, who can sit and say, okay, I'm not going to try and outdo this. I'm going to let this shape me significantly rather than continually bringing in more new I'm going to sit with the old for a little while. Okay. Koaleth. It all comes down to this. How are we doing? Does anybody want to ask a question? Um, does anybody want to go, I can't believe it. Don't throw rocks. Um, this is not kind. Um, don't throw anything. Um, any questions or comments at all? Brian, yeah. Do you want to... The impression that this uh, epilogue has been written by some really devoted uh, rabbi um, in answer to people like most of the people here were saying, What on earth is the Ecclesiastes all about? How does it fit into the Old Testament? Because it's completely different to everything else. Um, and this is, as you say, the very first words were, He's trying to say this is kosher. Um, so is, is that a message we take from this? That it's, uh, <coughs> you know, it might, it might be difficult. It's not really good English, blah, 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 blah. <coughs> what does it mean? Uh, and I think you've got given us an impression that this is worth reading. This is what it's all about. And it just seems to me that that's, that's why it was added in to, to say, right, you've seen all this now. Before you throw it away as rubbish, <laughs> read it again. Yeah, Brian, you, you touched on a really interesting thing, which I, I would dearly love to engage in loads and loads of detail with, but it would probably be really deathly boring for everybody else. Um, the, Brian was just commenting on how this, this epilogue has almost been added, uh, and that's probably true. And biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars, would spend a long time reflecting on, considering how we might find different levels of sources within any particular one document. It's almost certain that the epilogue has been added on to the end of Koaleth's words. When that happened and how it happened doesn't actually matter in the end. The fact is that there it is. That Ecclesiastes is what it is with these different layers and bits and pieces in it. And so, as Brian said, it teaches us this is kosher, this is true, this is good. Um, and so when you come across things like that, it's important to, to not go, oh, I don't, this, this seems a bit weird. Um, but to receive it as, as the biblical text and to wrestle with it and things. Thank you. Good comment, mate. I appreciate that. All scripture is breathed out by God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or it could, that word can mean breathed out from. God breathed out of scripture. That's what the sense of that word can mean as well. Okay, uh, I'm going to move on because we're getting close to a digression that could take us down another direction. Uh, I want to land on this because it sets us up for the rest of the life zone tomorrow and, uh, and the next day, which is Sunday. So, Sunday, is that right? 
dear, oh dear. Um, what's my name again? <laughs> uh, the end of the matter. You'd be pleased to hear. <laughs> All has been heard. Don't get too excited. I've got 15 minutes left. Uh, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So here we are. We've come back round to fear God again. We talked about that being one of the key components of wisdom material. Uh, we've talked about what it means, that it's about appropriate human response to God, that it's functionally the equivalent as of faith and trust in the New Testament. Uh, and here we find that as a summary of Coalette's work in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Pillar just says, that's it, that, that's enough. Here's how to sum it up. Fear God, keep his commandments. Now, that could either be taken as meaning don't really pay attention to Koaleth, pay attention instead on fearing God and keeping his commandments, or, as I think is a better way of taking it, and probably the right way, is that if you really want to understand what Koaleth has been talking about here, it's all summed up in this fear God and keep his commandments. So in other words, Koaleth exists in the book of Ecclesiastes to teach you how you might do that properly. Ecclesiastes is trying to teach you with all its spikiness, with all its discomfort, with all its ah, wriggly, I'm not sure, this seems weird. It's teaching you what it looks like to fear God. It's teaching you to be an Abraham. It's teaching you to be an, a Job or a Noah. It's teaching you to be one who is wise, who fears God, whose life is appropriately uh, directed towards God in the world, has a right posture towards God and life in his world. It's a beautiful, beautiful way to summarize the book. Some commentators, sadly, take the command uh, to fear God and keep his commandments as that kind of, like a shrug, meh. <laughs> as though he's saying, hey-ho, good luck with that one. But I'm just not convinced. Think of how warmly the apologist has spoken of Coaleth. Wouldn't it be weird to speak so warmly and so encouragingly about what he has written and then to go, at the end of it? just doesn't make sense at all. I almost wonder whether this verse is analogous to Jesus' command to love God and neighbor, for all the law and the prophets depend on those commandments. Perhaps. That's how Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. Fear God, keep his commandments perhaps there's a conceptual link between those two. Move on. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The interesting question here is whether or not the apologist has um, an eschatological view. Uh, is he thinking about end times judgment? Probably not. Um, but it's not super obvious what kind of perspective he has here, what, where, what he understands as judgments um, in some kind of future sense. So I want to suggest that what we take from this final verse, in the context of the rest of the epilogue, in the rest of what I've been saying and what we've learned about Coaleth from the epilogue, is firstly that our lives are opaque to God. They are clear. They are open to God. And that fearing God and keeping his commandments is an appropriate response, given that God is God and we are not. 
Tomorrow I want to show you how some of the places in Ecclesiastes really draw that distinction very sharply. That there is a significant difference between that which is God and that which is not. And you definitely, definitely belong in the latter category, right? The not God category. (laughs) You do know that, don't you? Yes, you do. There's also the suggestion, though, that fearing God and keeping his commandments is not the absolute guarantee that every detail of your life will go swimmingly well. And here is an issue for us. And here is a big issue for charismatic Christians, whether capital C or lowercase c. We sometimes think that wisdom works like this. The Bible says that. I do that. Therefore, everything goes perfectly. Who has ever found that to be true? Right. So what do you do? Because you go to events and conferences and you listen to sermons and you read books that suggest that the Bible says that and you do that and everything goes like that. What do you do? What do you do? Do you say, oh, it can't be true after all then and I backslide and I leave church and I get cross and I shake my fist at God? Or do you pretend Yes, you do. You put on your game face and you show up on Sunday and you just try and give the impression that even though you don't really believe that's how it works, that that, that's how it's going for you. I just believe God and everything goes swimmingly. And of course, everybody knows that nobody thinks that, but nobody's willing to say it. So everybody pretends and we all put on our good clothes. We smile and everything's happy, even though we're going, ah, rubbish. I've tried this, but it doesn't work. So what's going on? I mean, this is partly why. Okay, I'm going to let you in on it early because okay, I've sort of I've, I've blown the notes away now. I'm, I've, I've gone off piece. Anything could happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> the reason I've called this series Karma Calamity is this. So often what we call wisdom as Christians is more like karma. Okay? And we even judge people by this means. We look at people whose lives aren't going right, whose calamity has struck, things are going wrong, and we think, ah, if only she'd made that decision, bless her. You know that bless her is just like the kind of, it's the kind of excuse for slamming somebody, isn't it? And you add bless her at the end, and it's all sanctified, and God doesn't mind that you gossip so long as you say bless her, bless him at the end. Busted. <laughs> So we, we, we believe that we have this thing. We think we do it all right. We do it right. We kind of live under God. We put in the coins of obedience, pull the handle, down come the goodies and the blessings, and we just walk into them. And then it goes wrong, and we wonder what's going on. And it's a calamity. It's a calamity because that's karma. You do the right stuff, and you get what you're owed. That's karma. That's not biblical wisdom. And the thing is that Koaleth looks at the world. He looks at everything under the sun. He explores it. He digs into it. And he thinks there's a God of justice. There's a sovereign, eternal, transcendent one who reigns over all things. And yet the wicked prolong their life while the righteous perish. What the heck? That's what's going on. And Koaleth, for him, is a karma calamity. Because he thinks that really and truly it should be like you line everything up and everything just goes perfectly. But what he discovers is that God can't be manipulated. He can't be controlled. And even though you might think you've got your cast iron guarantees, it just never, ever works like that. 
And so what do you do? Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. It will never work perfectly for you, this side of Jesus appearing. Ever. Quit lying to yourself. Quit lying to others. Be honest. I thought it was all going to go like this. I'm gutted it didn't. Fear God, keep his commandments. So if you're having a karma calamity this morning, or in your life, this month, this year, this decade, this forever, (laughs) take on board Coalette's words. We're going to discover how to line our lives up, not in a sense of, I just kind of get myself in the right place, but how we position ourselves towards life in the world with God in an appropriate way that fears him and keeps his commandments and that brings a perspective on life that actually frees us, takes away the pressure, takes away that kind of urgency of having to make everything work and allows us to to live before God. That's what life is, isn't it? It's a living with and before God in the world. And Ecclesiastes wants to help us to do that. Um, I went off piste. It's never wise when you're preaching to go try and get back on piste. If you preach, don't try. (laughs) Because A, your sermon goes about three times longer. And B, you can never quite find the thing again. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I should probably just end, I think. We'll call it quits there, yeah? I've given, you the, I've given you the kind of idea. I've given you some big picture hermeneutical stuff. We've talked about Old Testament wisdom. We've talked about fearing God. We've talked about how the apologist sees Coalette's words as being kosher and good and wise and true. How we sum up Coalette's message and the message of Ecclesiastes in fear God. And how that actually really touches our lives and what it looks like to find Coalette's goad uh, jabbing your butt when you're in the middle of a karma calamity and reminding you that it doesn't work like that, but fear God anyway, okay? If you come back tomorrow, we will be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Three key texts in Ecclesiastes that deal with the fear of God, see what I've done there, in different contexts of life. All right. And we will understand then, hopefully, a bit more about how Colette's words and perspective shape us in that Godward direction in these different contexts. Thank you for being so patient. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Feel free to come and bombard me or whatever at the end. Um, I, I love talking to people. So, uh, amen. Have a good afternoon.